stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Welcome back. My name is Rob Breckenridge. Thanks for being with us here on this Friday afternoon. So it was a big announcement this week from Toronto Police that they have finally, they say, solved the the murder mystery from 1984 uh, that has plagued, uh, I think, really this country ever since, certainly the Jessup family. What happened to Christine Jessup, who kidnapped, assaulted, and murdered this girl back in 1984? Uh, for a long time, police believed... The system believed uh, that it was Guy Paul Moran who did this, uh, a neighbor of the family. He was initially acquitted of the murder, then convicted in a subsequent trial before finally being exonerated in 1995. So now 25 years later, police say they figured out who actually did this. Let me just play this clip here. This is uh, James Lockyer, who was a lawyer for Guy Paul Moran, uh, and how Moran is feeling about the news today. I spoke to him this morning uh, when I heard the news that was coming, and indeed after he had spoken to the police. And uh, you could hear, you know, the relief in his voice. And I hope that uh, this has uh, at least uh, lifted a little bit off off them. Uh, maybe it's, it, it's a crumb of comfort for them. But uh, uh, and for Guy Paul as well, it, it, it is uh, comforting to know that the right person has finally... Uh, been identified, the person who who raped and murdered uh, Christine. I can tell you right from the outset, I had no doubts that uh, uh, Guy Paul was innocent. Obviously, many people had doubts. Even after the uh, the acquittal in 1995, there were probably many who were still convinced that this was the person responsible, that he'd caught off on some kind of a technicality here. Uh, but certainly the crime itself was shocking and horrific. And then, of course, we had now the additional tragedy of somebody being wrongfully convicted for this crime. And now here we are in the year 2020, where we're finally finding some answers. Someone who's written extensively about this case, joining us on the line here this afternoon. Uh, Kirk Mackin is a, a former crime reporter with The Globe and Mail, spent 30 years there, and uh, wrote a book about this case called Red Rum, The Innocent. He's now co-president with Innocence Canada. InnocenceCanada.com is their website. Kirk, great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. Did you ever think we'd, we'd, we'd get to this point, that we'd be here sitting, talking about uh, the resolution of this case? I guess I tended to agree with the position uh, that uh, Guy Paul Moran has had uh, ever since the DNA, and that is that someday it would be solved. Um, I felt it would be solved. The DNA uh, analysis has been getting more and more and more sophisticated. Uh, the scenario I sort of anticipated was that someone, was that the killer, would be imprisoned for something else. He would be charged with something else. They would get his DNA, and there would be a click, and they'd have him. Um, it, this is, of course, not uh, quite how that happened. Uh, this is someone who is dead now by his own hand, uh, committed suicide uh, in 2015, and there was some blood retained uh, from his autopsy, and that was what was used. So uh, we have the killer, but we have a killer who cannot be brought to justice. 
Well, and that's that's kind of the awkward part of all of this. It, it seems like very compelling evidence, but I mean, you know, people look back and boy, you know, the, the system screwed this up badly the first go around. Should we trust or have faith that they've got it right this time? Well, I, I guess one can always uh, say that, um, but, you know, DNA is, is pretty definitive, unless there's some reason to believe uh, that it was somehow falsified. Um, it is as definitive as anything we've got. It's the gold standard. Uh, it exonerated uh, Guy Paul Moran, and mm-hmm. it would be it would have to be one heck of a coincidence for someone who was a friend of the Jessup family, um, and who committed suicide five years ago, to have uh, not been the killer, because the DNA on Christine's underwear from a semen stain left by the killer, matches that of Calvin Hoover, um, the perpetrator. Now, in all your research on the case, uh, did did this name ever come up? When when you heard the name Calvin Hoover, did that that ring any bells to you? It rang a very distant bell, and I believe it was because uh, he was simply someone who knew the family. Uh, I think somewhere in the evidence, there must have been a reference to his wife, uh, to the fact that on the morning of the abduction and murder, um, uh, Mrs. Jessup had spoken to her friend Heather on the phone. That's probably how it came up. But he was never portrayed, uh, including in uh, all the documentation of the police, their, you know, their private reports and so on filed all the way through the case. There was never any indication that he was on the radar or that they did any kind of serious investigation, if any investigation at all, of him. There were other uh, possible suspects where there was quite a bit of reporting done on what was or wasn't possible evidence against them, but not Calvin Hoover. So it was it was his wife who worked with Christine's father. Was that the relationship? Yes, and they became family friends, and uh, as Ken Jessup, uh, Christine's brother, uh, tells it, uh, and Janet as well, the mother, um, they say that uh, they were fairly close, that they went to barbecues uh, and social gatherings at one another's homes, that the Hoovers were at a wake uh, for Christine that was held at the Jessup home uh, after her funeral, no, that's the type of closeness there was. So it's it's not a chance acquaintance. It's it's right. it's someone who was in their orbit. And and according to Janet and Ken Jessup, he knew Calvin would have known through his wife that Christine was going to be home alone that afternoon because everyone else was out. So that gave the opportunity. And I just, I'm trying to imagine what the family's grappling with this week. You know, there, there is the idea of maybe having some closure finally, but then having to go back and reconcile that after all of these years, this individual who you thought was a friend, who was there for the family after this tragedy, somebody who the family, you know, the, the Jessups probably mourned when he died five years ago, to know now yeah. that this was the person responsible. It's, you know... <laughs> If for each of them, I think there there are there are different impacts uh, of yeah. each thing that comes along, um, but for all three in the family, there there's it, it's just been one punch after another. They were led to believe that it was definitely Guy Paul Moran, the guy next door, 
They went with that belief for years. He was acquitted at a trial, and they were outraged that he could, quote, get off. Then there was another trial held, and at that trial, he got convicted. They were elated. He'd finally paid the price. And then he gets exonerated based on DNA. So they're thrown back to the beginning again. In the case of Janet and, and Ken, they... Uh, they accepted the DNA results and and believed that this did exonerate uh, Guy Paul. In the case of Christine's dad, he didn't buy it, and he he believed that somehow Guy Paul had done it and had gotten away with it. So I think each of them has been pummeled in their own way, and how they deal with it today, I don't know. I mean, the idea that all these years have gone by and all of this endless verbiage and fighting and courtroom battling and all the rest of it and here they are finding out that a family friend who really should have been investigated right off the bat um, was the one who did it now there is that question of of how the police landed on on Guy Paul Moran as a suspect he was a convenient suspect in that he, he was a neighbor of the family I do wonder now and we look at images of uh, Calvin Hoover at the time, and, and there's almost kind of a passing resemblance there to Guy Paul Moran. Do you think that played a factor at all, looking back now? I don't. Uh, I, don't I honestly don't. Um, it, it, it looks, there, there, this wasn't really a case involving visual identification. Mm-hmm. It was a case involving, really, whether, whether Guy Paul could ascertain where he was in terms of an alibi and that he was uh, that he was not confessing to police and to a couple of inmate informants after his arrest because much of the case was dependent on his allegedly having confessed and now we know of course that he obviously did not confess right. I mean that's become fairly obvious over the years now it's flagrantly obvious so it wasn't really a looks uh, a looks kind of thing. I don't think really there was any uh, evidence that related to sort of a photo right. lineup. Never any eyewitnesses. Nobody said, "Oh, I saw him doing this," or "Or I saw him in a certain place." There wasn't really any of that kind of evidence, was there? Not the sort of thing that I think you're you're driving yeah. at. Um, yeah. No, it was. I mean, there were no there were no witnesses to the seduction. There were no witnesses to the killing, um, and so. It really was a matter of forensic evidence, whether there was any, you know, fingerprints or hair or, or clothing fibers that linked Guy Paul to Christine. And there were his own utterances, which uh, the police, uh, in their uh, questionable wisdom, felt were, um, were incriminating. Uh, and that was kind of what the case was built on. And... It, the evidence was scanty to begin with, and they were in that most tenuous of circumstances where they were trying to continue fashioning a case around him after he had been charged, which we yeah. have learned over the years is a recipe for disaster. Yeah, no kidding. When you, when you get those blinders on and, and you think you've got the person and then you're trying to backfit everything else, it, it doesn't end well. Um, exactly. And, right. and I might mention that you had... You had a, a small town police force. You had a couple of lead detectives who really had no experience with homicides. And you had enormous public pressure 
uh, as you alluded to earlier, everybody was watching this. This took place in central Canada with the populations it has and with the media it has, and and it was a sensational case. Um, and so it was. There was a, one hell of a lot of pressure on the yeah. police, and they bent. You know, and, and the other question that, that's going to linger as well, um, and, and we talk about how uh, Hoover avoided any kind of suspicion through all of this. And, and clearly, without DNA technology at the time, this would have been a really tough case to solve. And we're left with this hypothetical that if if Guy Paul Moran had had a more of a slam dunk alibi, if it had been more obvious at the start that, that he wasn't the person responsible would this have remained unsolved? In other words, did, did Calvin Hoover commit a crime that would have been very difficult for police to have pinned on him at the time? Well, it's a fascinating uh, question. Um, and I guess in an equal spirit of total speculation, uh, it, they, they had apparently discarded him without considering him as a genuine suspect. So it may have gone years until... Some cold case squad, such as the Toronto police, uh, took it up again and re- and took another look at people who had been rejected as suspects and for some reason keyed in on it. Had they done that, there are ways that police, of course, can get their evidence, including, you know, undercover officers trying to coax you into confessions and, you know, the possibility that he might have blurted something out to people around him. There might have been forensic evidence that would have linked him to Christine if they had known to look for it. So all of those things could have happened. And in the final analysis, eventually we would have come to the day where a cold case squad would have taken the DNA and had it undergo the sophisticated analysis they have now, and they would have got the same answer. This guy looks like he is in the family of possible matches look closely at him they did they sent his sample down to the lab in texas and sure enough it was a match for the evidence from the crime scene because ultimately this cuts to to the sort of the double outrage of wrongful convictions i think we can all uh, empathize or sympathize with Guy paul moran and others who have been wrongly convicted because really theoretically i mean it could happen to any of us but it's not just about how Guy Paul Moran was wronged. It's how justice was wronged. Once you've landed on a suspect and you say he did it and he didn't, you've given up looking for the, the actual suspect, that someone gets away with the crime because you've landed on the wrong suspect. And, and that's what ab- happened here ab- for so long. It's absolutely true. Um, once, you, once you lay that charge and you're proceeding to court, the chances are you have ceased looking for anybody else because then it begins to count against your case. If there's another suspect and the defense can present that other suspect at the trial of person A, then there's a possibility that he'll get acquitted. So, yes, they don't go out looking for more evidence afterward. And that's what happened in, in this case. Well, if you want to read more of the background of this case, that book is called Red Rum, The Innocent. Uh, much more at innocencecanada.com. Kirk, it's been great talking to you here today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Bye for the best. Uh, that is uh, Kirk Mackin, a former reporter, crime reporter with The Globe and Mail, 30 years at The Globe, uh, wrote the book Red Rum, The Innocent in 1998. And yeah, Red Rum, The Innocent was uh, something that Guy Paul Moran had allegedly said to a cellmate in prison. 
and, and that was taken to be incriminating evidence. It was used against him at his trial. And it just seemed like a case of we think this is the guy and now we're just going to apply anything we think is going to stick here. So it's easy in hindsight now to see how police boxed themselves in and, and screwed up this investigation. Obviously, at the time, this kind of a crime without DNA technology would have been difficult to solve, but just a real lack of curiosity. And so what must uh, this individual, this, this Calvin Hoover, have been thinking all these years? Knowing that he was close to the family, close to the investigation, hearing and seeing everything going on, and then seeing this other person arrested and charged... It's, um, yeah, it, it, it is frustrating, it is outrageous. And now we're sort of left with this question, like, is this definitive? Is this the final word? Because we're not going to get the closure of the murder charge being laid, of the conviction of this guy being walked away in handcuffs and put in prison because he died five years ago, took his own life. All right, we got to take a break here. Much more still to get to. Rob Breckenridge with you. We're back after this. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.